For the first time in 25 years, uh, the Lord led me this week, or throughout this Easter season, to, to spend the, the Holy Weekend focusing on the veil. Really kind of the, the concept that struck me to kind of grab my attention, if you will, and began God's learning journey for me, was God had to go through a lot of effort for the disciples even to know that the, tail had been, the veil had been torn on Good Friday. You know, if you track through the scriptures and you see the construction of the original tabernacle, which happened as the people had just left Egypt underneath the leadership of Moses, and then the construction of Solomon's temple in the 10th century, about a thousand years before Christ, and then the reconstruction of the last temple, Herod's temple, literally in the, in the last half decade before Jesus came into the world. Each of them was constructed with a special place inside of the temple complex that was supposed to be where God rested. There was the larger courts where everybody gathered. There was courts that were reserved for the, the Israelites themselves. And then there was the, the temple proper, which had two chambers. One was the holy place. And that's where the priests, and only the priests, could go every day to offer up offerings to God on behalf of the people. On the back side of that holy place, there was this massive veil. By the time of Solomon's temple, it had grown to be 60 feet high. And it was three inches thick. And as the, the video told us, they, their claim was that not even a team of horses could rip it apart. It was that strong and that heavy. And it hung over an opening to what was known as the Holy of Holies. And it was a place where the Ark of the Covenant was placed. And on the top of the Ark of the Covenant was what was called the Mercy Seat. And there were two special like representations of divine figures that sat on top of it. And that was the place where the presence of God rested. And for 364 days of year, year, that veil was a barrier, a separating force between God and man. The priest could come in each every day to the holy place and offer up sacrifices to God, but only one day a year could the high priest, after elaborate preparations, actually enter into the Holy of Holies and seek to offer up a special offering requesting God's forgiveness of the people for sins that they weren't even aware of, things that they didn't even know they had committed, things that, that you know, that, those kinds of ideas. And, and so on Good Friday, when Jesus dies on the cross, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that this veil was ripped from top to bottom. As the video said, it's something only God could do because of its height and of its strength. But it's an interesting question to ask. Well, how did the disciples learn about it? I mean, the only people who got to go into the holy place were the the priests, right? So the only people who actually were in a position to be able to see that the veil had been ripped were the priests. So how did the disciples find out about it? Tell you the truth, I don't know the answer. But God went to a lot of trouble to make sure that they were aware of it and that they were convinced enough of it that they were willing to put their credibility behind it to tell us that God had ripped that veil from top to bottom. We can certainly see the value of it. In fact, when I originally started dealing with the veil, I, I intended it to be a Good Friday subject. You'll see over here, it's kind of our lame attempt to represent a ripped veil. You should have even seen me trying to rip it earlier, so it was even more of a, of a lame experience. But the representation here of trying to, to represent for you the fact that God has ripped this veil. And that's what happened on Good Friday. Matthew tells us that the moment that Jesus breathed his last breath, it was torn from top to bottom. And it signifies that God has taken down the barrier. What had placed the veil there was the uncleanness of man, his unfitness to be able to be in the presence of the perfect God. The Bible calls all of that sin. But on the cross, Jesus had dealt with sin once for all, and so it was torn from top to bottom, and the barrier had been removed. But as I continued studying, 
I discovered that the veil has an incredible place in post-resurrection theology. It has a message to us on Easter, not just on Good Friday. And the significance is this. The resurrection changes everything. It just does. And it, it changes our lives if we embrace it in faith, and it just kind of goes on. But it also changes the role of the veil. For 364 days a year, the veil was a barrier between people and God. One day a year, it was a point of access. It was, what, it was through the veil that the high priest entered into the presence of God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ transforms the role of the veil. Now it stands for the fact that the way of God is always open to us. That access to God has been opened up to us, and his invitation to us is to enter boldly. In fact, as we're going to learn in just a minute from the book of Hebrews, Jesus' body, his, his, literal, his literal self, the person of Christ, becomes the, the means, the curtain by which we enter into, into God's presence. And the message of Easter is that it's not just for one person on one day, after elaborate preparations to be able to come through the means of access to the presence of God. But now because Jesus has been resurrected, because the veil has been torn and the way has been opened up, every person on every day at every moment can live in the presence of God. The, what, the door of access has been thrown open to us and God's invitation is for us to enter boldly. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to the book of Hebrews with me. If you don't have a Bible, we have them there in the pews for you. We'd love for you to gra- pull one out and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take one with you. We have them out on our response table out in the middle of the foyer, and you can pick one up and take it with you. And if you're using one of our pew Bibles, we'd, you'll find our text today on page 1021. Again, 1021. Let me really encourage you to, to read along with me as I read it. One of our, one of our values here at Hope Chapel is we, we don't want people to believe anything just because the church says so. Or just because the pastor says so. You know, that's just because we, we proclaim it from the pulpit or we post it on our website. But we want you to believe it because you've read the word, you've struggled to understand it along with us, and you've come to your own convictions about what it means. I want to read just Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25 for us. And you're going to see this concept of the curtain introduced in the second verse. Beginning with the 19th verse, God says to us through the author of Hebrews, Therefore, brothers... Since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way, and that's a reference to the resurrection and its impact on all of the way that we relate to God. It's new, it's fresh, it's the new covenant, not the old covenant. It's living because Jesus is alive. By the new and living way that he has inaugurated for us through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us, and here's the key words, you're going to see that three times, each of his invitations about how it is we are to enter boldly. He says, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us be concerned, or let us consider how to stimulate one another, to love and good works, not st- staying away from meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other. And all the more as you say the, see the day drawing near. Here the, the author of Hebrews, and he's been working on this theme throughout his book, he here talks about how the, the veil has been transformed. Before it was a three-inch purple and blue and 
scarlet tapestry that had been woven and hung over the access. And, and for the majority of its role, it was a barrier. But now it had been ripped and thrown open. And that literally the veil had been transformed because before it was made out of fabric and now it was made out of the body of Christ. And he is the access point. And God has opened up that way of access into the Holy of Holies. And he says, enter boldly. He says, enter boldly. And, he, and then he gives us three specific ways that we should do that. And, and, you know, and I'm, I'm phrasing them to communicate to me and hopefully to you. But we see the first of those in verse 22. It says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed in pure water. And let me start with the imagery there at the end. This idea of sprinkling and this washing to be purified with water is, is literally imagery that's picked right up out of the Day of Atonement. You can go back over and read in Leviticus and some other places in the Old Testament the elaborate journey that the high priest went through in the Day of Atonement. He would dress up in his particular garment that he would wear for a portion of the day. And before he, before he um, put it on, he would wash himself in this water that was particularly sanctified before he used it. And then throughout the, at the course of the day, when it came time for the offerings, he would switch to a different robe and he would wash himself again and, and over and over again. And then as a part of his routine through the day, he would sprinkle blood from both calves and from goats over the altar and then over the mercy seat which sat on the top of the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. And it was symbolic of the fact because man had been touching it it had somehow become contaminated. So it was a request from God to purify it again so it could be a, a place where people could meet God. So he went through these elaborate things. This is all imagery for us to say that God is the one who prepares us to enter into his presence. The tenses of the verb here are passive. It's not like you have to go purify your conscience so that you think you feel right before God. It's not like you have to go somehow scrub yourself with a, a special kind of soap to get yourself spiritually clean. God does it for us. It's passive. It's something He do, has done for us. And with that, He has changed the way that we are re, to relate to Him. And so He invites us to enter boldly via a new way of relating to God. And when we base our relationship with God on faith, as it talks about here in verse 22. We can enter God with full assurance. You see, part of the message of Easter to us, this torn veil, the fact that the door of access to God has been opened up to us, is that you and I can relate to God in a brand new way. You know, and this has been preached for 2,000 years, and the vast majority of the church still does not get it. That our relationship with God is not based on merit. It's based on relationship. It's not what we've done, but who we know that qualifies us to stand in God's presence. And, and that is, that's a trans, the only way that you and I can stand before God with a full assurance of heart is not based upon what we've done, but what God has done for us that we receive through faith. I, I thought about how to try to illustrate this, and, and I may give my oldest son a heart attack here because I'm going to use a, an example from a Democratic president because, you know, he's a... He's with the Republican Club out at the UMass Amherst. And, but I was just a small child in the early 60s. But I can remember in a photo that became famous. In fact, I tried to download one so we could project it, but you can't believe how much money they wanted for this photo. But many of you remember the picture. It's a picture of John F. Kennedy Jr. playing underneath the desk of his father, who was the president. And why is he there? Because he has a relationship with the holder of the office. And I thought about what it would be like for the Russian ambassador to sit in the Oval Office. Remember, that was the day of, you know, the whole missile crisis in Cuba and et cetera, and the tensions with, with Russia had probably never been higher. 
and there was all this backdoor stuff. I, I wonder what it would have been like for the, the ambassador of Russia to sit in the Oval Office and look the president in the eye while, Russia, while the, the, the USSR was constructing these missile bases in Cuba. I mean, he would have had no merit to stand there, to be there. I mean, that's the picture of the transformation that goes on. We think we have to earn our way in there, and the Scripture just says that when we're outside of faith, we're enemies of God, and we might feel like the Russian ambassador in the presence of God, that we're not welcome. God says, I changed all that. The veil's been torn. It's no longer a barrier. It's a point of access. And I welcome you through what Christ, my Son, has done for you to come into my presence because I can make you clean, and you can play underneath my desk all you want. It's interesting to me. So many of us have heard that message and we've never taken action. Jen referred in her testimony that at the age of 13, she made that choice. And even though she was young, she has no doubt that she meant it. You can leave here today having made that choice as well. You know, in the back of your your, uh, chairs, there are some response cards that we use here at Hope Chapel. And you can just, you can, if you are ready, and if you've never before experienced a relationship with God, based upon a relationship with the Son. You know, we can go into a lot of things, but you can just take this card, fill one of these out, go by the desk. One of our elders will be out there. They can explain to you kind of the the heart and soul of the good news of Jesus Christ. There's a special follow-up resource for you so you can grow in your faith, and we'd love for you to take that step. But there is a a way for you today to feel at home underneath the desk of God in your journey. That's what Easter is all about, to enter boldly through a brand new way of relating to God. Take that step today. You know, some of you might say, well, I feel a little weird. I'll be walking out there. You know, there's hundreds of us here at Hope Chapel who have made that journey. Hmm. There's a second way that he talks about this in verse 23. He says we're not only supposed to enter boldly through a brand new relationship with God, but we're supposed to enter boldly to a whole new way of living, to a whole new way of living. He says let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, we need to start with what the word hope means, and then we can kind of back out and understand what he's saying to us. Often we think about hope as like a subjective feeling, kind of like the feeling I had last night about 11 o'clock when I was hoping that the Bruins would win the game and double overtime early in the second period because I needed to go to bed. The next day's Easter. You know, I got no <gasps> yawning in the middle of your sermon is not a good thing. It was time for me to go to bed, you know, but the game just kept going on and on and on and on. And I was hopeful they would win it early. In the, and sure enough, they did. But that's a feeling that we have, right? But that's not what he's talking about here at all. When he's talking about hope here, he's talking about it's, it's, it's not in a subjective sense, it's in an objective sense. He's talking about the content, the facts, if you will, of what God has done in the world through Jesus Christ. It starts with creation. It ends with redemption and our ultimate redemption when Jesus returns at the second coming. It's all of that. It's the content of what it is that God has revealed that he's done. It's, it's that stuff. It's objective. It's not a feeling, but it's actual truth. And he says we should hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. And here that idea of confession is, is like a lifestyle. It's a way of living. We don't know if we should connect that somewhat grammatically from this text to the, to the idea of a, it's a sense of hope, it's a confession, a lifestyle that comes from knowing we're in the presence of God. There's no way that we can get away from God because we've entered in into His presence through Jesus Christ. You know, and, and, and so there's that sense of, of a character of life that comes when we know we're in the presence of God, when we're in the hands of God. You know, out here in our lobby, it's interesting to watch the little children. You know, first when they start coming to church, they're carried. 
Then after a while, they start to sit, and then they crawl, and then they begin to walk a little bit. And one of their favorite things to do once they learn how to walk is run away from their parents. You know, so they get out of the children's wing, you know, and then they start running across the, the, the lobby, and they're trying to get away from their folks. And, and they're completely confident because they know mom and dad are chasing after them, you know. But every once in a while, they get so far away, and they, they can't see mom and dad anymore. And what happens? They get fearful, and they start to cry. So th- this, this sense of having hope of being in the presence of God is that idea we know that we're n- never outside of the presence of God. We've never run so far that God isn't there. And so we don't have that sense of fear, that insecurity, that sense of being abandoned or not knowing what to do. God's always there. But, but this idea of hopeful living can also be connected with the promises of God. He says, you know, because he who promised is faithful. You know, and, and the whole concept there is, is, you know, God has made his promises not just about the future, but he's made his promises about the presence, about the present time that we're here. And, and with that, all of this can be this idea that, that because we know God has made promises to us as now, and he has promises us for about the future, that we don't have to worry about tomorrow anymore. I mean, most of our lives are spent worrying about tomorrow, aren't they? Preparing for tomorrow. I can't believe how much preparation we made to get ready for today, the last couple of weeks. You know, we don't usually have this many flowers if you're visiting today. You know, this is just, just a little unusual, you know. And even though I love the brass because I can sing really loud and can't hear myself and it makes the worship better, you know, we don't usually have brass. I mean, we made all kinds of preparations. We always seem to be preparing for the future, right? If you're in school, you're getting ready for a test. If you're, if you're, not, you're trying to get ready for a promotion, you get this task to get done at work or whatever. You're, try, you're trying to invest to be ready for a retirement. It's always about the future. But you know what? We don't have to worry about the future anymore. And we can focus on today. It's a brand new way of living. It's this idea of, if I think it's, it's everything that we invest with God produces dividends. Because God's made promises to us. There's nothing that we invest that we lose anything on. I call it not, no downside living. You, anything you invest with God, you're never going to lose. Whether it's in good experiences or bad experiences, nothing that you invest with God you're ever going to lose. It's a brand new way of living. I was talking to somebody recently who was just thrilled that they had discovered this investment opportunity. They, they invested a, a sum of money, and they get 6% interest for the rest of their lives. Absolutely guaranteed. The principal can go up, but it can never go down. No downsides to it at all. And they're absolutely thrilled. We should be more thrilled that we can make this investment with God, and there's no downside. Because everything that we get, we invest with God, will come back to us. Sometimes it can be costly. I was told that the so, well, how do I get into that? Well, you've got to have 100 grand. It all counts me out, you know? Sometimes it can be costly. God expects our all. You know, you can start that journey of investing your all with God just by spending some time in the Word. We've given you in your worship guides today, it's just a two-week Bible reading plan about the life and the teachings of Jesus. If you're not ready for any bigger commitment than that, just start with two weeks. Just take that out right now and, 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 and stick it in your pocket. If you don't have a Bible, go buy and pick one up on your way out and just... Spend some time every day just reading those passages. If you don't know what those passages are, believe it or not, the Bible has a table of contents in it. You can look at the front. It'll tell you what page number Luke starts on. You can go find it. You know, it's not rocket science. And just spend some time investing in your eternal future. One last point. It's not only entering boldly through a new relationship. It's not just entering into a new way of life, but it's entering boldly to an incredibly new, fulfilling mission for life. He starts with verse 25, 4 by saying, Let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works. Not staying away from meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other all the more as we see the day drawing near. 
I love the, the translation of the NAS, but consider how to stimulate one another to love and the good works. I love the paraphrase that, uh, that um, is in the message where it says that we should become inventive in how we lead people to engage in love and good works. And the same kind of concept of not having to be worried about the future just changes what we can be worried about. You know, when, when you and I know that tomorrow's going to be okay and eternity's going to be okay and everything in between is going to be okay, we're not, we're not consumed with all the stuff that's around us. And guess what? We really can focus, and this is going to sound cliche-ish, but it's absolutely true. We can focus on making the world a better place. We can think about how to encourage others to love and good deeds. Wouldn't that make the world a better place? At least the way I understand it. We, can, we have a way that we can make the world a better place physically and spiritually. And what I love about this is that we don't have to do anything extraordinary to do that. He says, just do what you know is right to do in the eyes of God. You know it's right to show up and to worship with other people. So show up and worship. You know it's right to spend some time. Well, just spend some time. You know it's right to, to do unto others. As you, you know, just do the stuff that you know to do. It doesn't take extra special piety. It just takes doing what you know you should do. It doesn't take heroic efforts. It just takes simple faithfulness to live this incredibly new mission God has for us as a result of the torn fail. The venue that we use here at Hope Chapel to help people... to to help people grow in their knowledge of Christ and to encourage and to stimulate them, if you will, is a form that we call life groups. It may sound a little weird to some of you who aren't all that used to church, but over half of us here at Hope Chapel who are uh, adults gather every week in somebody's home, just eight to ten of us, sometimes six, sometimes twelve to fourteen, just to hang out with other people, spend some time praying, look at the Word, look at the Scriptures and ask some questions. And they're incredible relationships. Some of the best friends that I have right now are through that context. That's all it takes is simple steps. Is there a way for you to check off on the back of your connection card that you'd like some more information about how to get involved with a life group? And we'd be glad to follow up if that's a need that you see in your life. We'd be glad for you to join one of ours if you do not have one available through wherever you worship on a regular basis. So back to where we started. Here are the disciples with no access to the holy place. And God made sure that they were convinced that the veil was torn. So that 2,000 years later, folks like you and I could still know that we were welcome to enter boldly. To a new relationship with Christ. To a brand new way, a new, new character of doing life. With a whole new purpose in life. And that invitation still stands out there for us today. Enter boldly. In the name of God, in the name of Christ, the resurrected one, I invite you to enter boldly today into that special place. I'm going to invite our worship team to come. You know, we, I have always been amazed at just how powerful little symbols can be to people. I went and visited somebody in a hospital re- lately. All right, there we go. And last year at Easter, we were talking about why the stone had to be moved. And we gave out small stones at the end of that service and asked people just to hold on to them as a reminder that God moved the stone so that they would know that God moved it for them and that their lives could be different. I went and saw somebody in the hospital just had had surgery, just a few hours after surgery, and he was lying there in the hospital bed, and that stone was taped to the inside of his hand. And it was his second surgery in six weeks. He had had it in the other one. The doc, second time he showed up, the doctor said, well, did you bring God with you? You know, and they taped it right in his hand kind of idea. I'm amazed on how powerful little reminders can be that God has given us an opportunity to live life like we'd never have before. And so at the end of the rows, there are baskets. And if you're sitting on one of the center rows, I'd love for you to pick up those baskets and you can just pass, pass it down. It's 
supposed to be just like a little piece of the veil. And there's a word on there that just says, enter boldly. And I just encourage you to hold on to it. Maybe you stick it in your purse or stick it in the bottom of your shoe or whatever. Or just some place where it's always with you. And, and just let it be a constant reminder to you that 365 days a year, in every moment, in every one of those 365 days a year, it's, a possible, it's possible for every one of us to be in the presence of God. Let's pray and then we'll sing. God, thank you that the veil was torn and that you transformed it into Christ. And through that door, you, you cry out to us, come in. Come in boldly. Come to me. God, thank you that we can relate to you in a brand new way. That life can be totally different. And our lives can be about things that really matter both now and for eternity. All because of that simple Sunday morning when the tomb was found empty. He is risen. And we can't say thank you enough. In Jesus' name, amen.